Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 323. Today's big Bible question is, what is my loved one doing in heaven now? Plus, why does forgiveness require the shedding of blood? Part 1. Well, happy Saturday, everybody. As an update, I am still the only healthy member of the Bible Reading Podcast bunker slash household. A couple of the kids seem to be improving, but my wife, Janet, is actually having a pretty rough go of it and feeling pretty rotten. Your prayers for all of us, and especially for her, are most appreciated. I do praise God that all of our COVID tests have been negative, so that's a good thing. Now, as I was loading up today's scripture for the podcast, I realized that I did an uh uh-oh yesterday. Instead of reading Psalms 145, which was our regularly scheduled psalm, My eyes jumped ahead a day, and I read and even focused on Psalms 146 and 147 yesterday, skipping 145. We'll rectify that today and be back on track tomorrow, and I'm very sure my pay will be docked for that major miscue. We open today with a great question from a most faithful listener, Willem from Minneapolis, writes and says, Your title question of Tuesday's podcast leads me to another question I am pondering. My dad passed away on November 2nd, 2011. Sorry to hear that, Willem. I believe that I will see him again in heaven, he says, when I pass away or when and if I am fortunate to be of the generation that will be caught up to Jesus. Here is the question that I am pondering. What is my dad doing right now in heaven? So, Willem, it turns out that there is much less information on what humans are currently doing in heaven, as opposed to what Jesus is doing in heaven. Um, I do not think we will have wings, sit on clouds, and play harps. I do think when Jesus returns, our eternal place will be the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, So there is some sort of intermediate state between uh, where we are now and where people go now. Uh, that uh, is awaiting the return of Jesus and the end of all things to um, it's intermediate because it's between all of those things. So it's whatever intermediate state our loved ones are in right now, call it paradise uh, or something like heaven. It's not going to be the permanent new heavens and new earth. Um, so like I said, I don't think we'll have wings, sit on clouds, play harps. For one, angels don't have wings anyway. For two, humans don't become angels when they go to heaven, as we talked about before. I guess we could play harps or sit on clouds. And I'll just tell you, I'll probably try to sit on a cloud if if possible, but I don't think that's really what people are going to be doing. Uh, There are three speculative works on heaven that I've read over the years that impressed me as having some level of genuineness to them. But please know that I've never done a Paul or a John and visited heaven, and I genuinely have no idea. It's about like me reading a, a guidebook to South Sudan and saying, you know what, I think that guidebook pretty much nailed it. This is just like I imagined South Sudan would be. I've never been to Sudan, uh, never been to heaven, never had a, a a vision about that or were caught up to heaven like Paul was. Now, these three works that I've read, though, that impressed me as having a biblical level of genuineness to them was uh, a fictional work by Randy Alcorn, who is a faithful Bible teacher, called Deadline. Uh, it's been over a decade when I since I've read it. It may have even been over two decades since I read it. But when I did, I thought its portrayal of eternity went well beyond a sort of Paradise Lost vibe and seemed to capture a much more biblical understanding of heaven. 
C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle is another one that has an exhilarating description of heaven that seems to have a lot of biblical truth to it. And more recently, uh, one you probably haven't heard of is a blog post by an excellent writer, one of the best uh, that I've ever read, who sadly doesn't seem to be writing much this, these days. His name is Greg Lucas. He's a police officer, follower of Jesus. He's the father to a son with significant special needs named Jake. And in his post, which I have linked on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, uh, in his post called No More Tears, Greg distri- describes not a visit to heaven. Uh, I'm a little, yeah, I think those, those best-selling I Visited Heaven books are a little bit on the sketchy side. But Greg describes not a visit to heaven, but what he perceives that heaven might be like in his imagination. And I sort of suspect he's hit on something. So if you want to check that out, go to his blog. Uh, and I guess I don't even know the address of it. What is it? Sheepdogger.blogspot.com, something like that. But the fastest way to do it is just come to BibleReadingPodcast.com, click on the link for today's show notes, episode 323, and I've got it highlighted there. No more tears. Click on that, and you really should read it. It's incredibly encouraging and moving. Well, I like how the website GotQuestions.org speaks of what heaven might be like. They say this, in Luke 23:43, Jesus declared, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The word Jesus used for paradise is paradisos, which means a park, uh, specifically an Eden-like place of happiness in paradise. Paradisos is the Greek word taken from the Hebrew word pardes, which means a park, a forest, an orchard. Jesus said, Today you will be with me on paradisos, not in nepheli, which is Greek for in the clouds. The point is that Jesus picked and used the word for a park, not just any park, but the paradise of God or the park of God spoken of in Revelation 2.7, which for us will be a place of future happiness. Does that sound like a boring place? When you think of a park, do you think of boredom? I don't. God's word says we won't have to be in his paradise alone. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, I shall fully know even as I also am fully known. And that would seem to indicate that we would not only know our friends and family, we will fully know them. In other words, there's no need for secrets in heaven. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to hide. We will have eternity to interact with a great multitude, which no man can number out of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, says Revelation 7, 9. So heaven will be a place of infinite learning. Just getting to know everyone will take eternity. And you know what? I think they nailed it. I think that's absolutely right. And Revelation 22 in the Bible gives us a pretty amazing picture of what heaven is like. Now, Willem and everybody else, as I read this description of heaven, ask yourself, knowing your dad, what would he do in a place like that? And I imagine it's possible he might just be doing what you think he would be doing, given the description of heaven we have in the Bible. So Revelation 22, uh, 1 through 5 says... Uh, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, 
because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So, you know, Willem, if I was there and it was possible, most days you'd find me swimming in that river or fishing in that river or something like that because I love the water, love being around it. And uh, hopefully I'd be there with family and friends very nearby and enjoying it with me. So what would your dad do in a park? What would your dad do near a river? What kind of things would he do? And like I said, he's very likely doing those things now with friends and loved ones and getting to know people and worshiping the Lamb. I, again, haven't been there, but I suspect that's what you'll find when you next talk to your dad that he's been up to, and it sounds like a great adventure. Our readings for today include 2 Chronicles 3 and 4, and I note again, we will be uh, we will do this at the end of our readings today, and we are still under the same National Weather Service warning from yesterday about bad pronunciation of Hebrews' names. Also, we're going to read Psalm 145, Amos 3, and Hebrews 9. Now, our big Bible question of the day, which we're going to do in a two-parter, because Hebrews 10 also talks about the blood is uh, based on a pretty well-known passage, Hebrews 9.22, which says, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, what does that mean exactly? And why does God require bloodshed for forgiveness? Well, let's think about that as we read our passage today. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, And the tablets of the covenant, the cherubim of glory, were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. Yet the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. 
For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven himself itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So the whole blood thing in Christianity can be a big stumbling block for people. Why do Christians talk about blood? Why do they sing sing songs about the blood of Jesus? Look, if you're not if you didn't grow up in the church, uh, and many of you didn't, I realize that that's got to be a weird thing to hear Christians singing about the blood of Jesus. It's weird to sing about the blood of Jesus. It's weird to talk about being under the blood of Jesus. Blood is a little uh, kind of gross in our society, right? So it's got to be strange. And we're going to talk about a little bit today and a little bit more tomorrow why uh, Christianity is so focused on the blood of Jesus. You're going to find there's profound reason for it. But on the surface, it can be a little off-putting. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the Bible says that the good news of Jesus is a stumbling block to people because you're like, but but blood, the blood of Jesus, What, what do I need blood of Jesus for? That's so weird. Well, Pastor Tim Keller talks about this situation and encapsulates that issue very well when he says, we're looking at the book of Hebrews, we come to chapters 9 and 10, the heart of Hebrews, where we learn the basic message, Jesus saves through sacrifice, he saves through his blood. In fact, nine, verse uh, chapter 9 verse 22 goes as far to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Right here, he says, people Modern people have a big problem with Christianity. When contemporary people hear it said that God requires blood in some way to turn aside his wrath from sin, it sounds offensive. It sounds gross. It sounds disgusting, primitive, obscene. Christianity has sometimes been called disdainfully the religion of the slaughterhouse, and this doesn't seem to be what we need in this world that's filled with blood and violence. Surely we need a religion of moral uplift and love, not a religion of violence and blood. But the book of Hebrews tells us there is power in the blood. And indeed there is. Ultimate justice, friends, is encapsulated in a passage like Exodus 21-23, which says, If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Now, this is not merciful, but it's fair. It's absolutely 100% just, and God is fully, fully and wholly just. When we sin, a price must be paid for our sin, and the currency needed is not 
American dollars or Mexican pesos or Spanish reals, but blood, as the Bible tells us in Leviticus 17.11, the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Again, I know it's weird, but what is meant here is that we have to pay for our sins with our life, with our lifeblood. And that's not good news. That's bad news because we don't have a lot of blood and we sin a ton, right? So that that's not going to be a balance that's in our favor in the least. The good news, however, is that Jesus uh, paid that price with his bloodshed and not ours. So we'll continue this discussion tomorrow, but I do want to close with a great anecdote story from uh, Pastor Tim Keller about Billy Graham. 1955, Billy Graham was invited to speak at one of the centers of intellectualism in the entire world, Cambridge University in England. Many people there were stirred up. They were kind of outraged even by Billy Graham coming, knowing that he was a guy who uh, like believed the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And there was protests, uh, maybe letters to the editor of the newspaper and things like that. And as Keller says, one of the letters said something like, I'm sure Billy Graham is a very sincere person, but he's a fundamentalist. He's a person who believes you have to be saved through the blood of Jesus and fundamentalist Christianity is bad for us. And besides that, it'll never have an impact on the elite young men and women of Europe. Well, Billy Graham decided he was still going to go, but this protest in the letters to the editor freaked him out. I mean, reading all that stuff, it really intimidated him, so he prepared eight messages because he was going to preach at the Great St. Mary's Cathedral, which is the central church in Cambridge. There were 8,000 students at Cambridge and 2,000 students and professors every night for eight nights in a row packed Great St. Mary's Cathedral out. So, He prepared these incredibly brilliant talks, very different from what he usually wrote. Very erudite, very intellectual. In fact, he said in one place that he thought he had to preach like John Stott if he was going to come to Cambridge. The first three nights, the place was packed out and nothing happened. He could tell nothing happened. There were mostly students, but there was a lot of the Cambridge professors there too. The faculty was there. Everybody was sitting there and not much was happening. On Wednesday, though, Billy Graham threw away his prepared message and said, I'm just going to tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Dick Lucas, who was there at the time in 1955, says something like, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night. This is the night he'd thrown away his prepared message and he began at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and talked about every single sacrifice you could imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, says Lucas, everywhere for three quarters of an hour. Both of my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded, but at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind to make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed, Cambridge graduates and undergraduates. Dick remembers meeting a young curate, a brilliant young Cambridge student who went into the ministry, and he talked to him several years later and said, where did Christian things begin for you? And that man said, oh, Cambridge, 1955. 
at a Billy Graham mission on Wednesday night. Dick Lucas said, how did it happen? And the man said, I don't know. All I do know is that when I walked out of there that night, finally, I realized that Jesus Christ really died for me. He had been a good person, but that night, the blood of Christ wrote all of that on his heart. He had known Jesus as an example, but never as a savior. And that night, his life was transformed. Pastor Dick Lucas essentially says, It was unbelievable to the professors around me that a man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed the lives of young men and women like that. But so it did, because the blood of Jesus Christ has power. Now, that's a great testimony. Um, And interestingly enough, Pastor Dick Lucas, who gave much of that testimony, uh, is still alive. It's amazing to think he was in college uh, around that time. Um, He was born in 1925. He was in college when, uh, or maybe even a teacher at the college uh, of Cambridge when uh, Billy Graham came, and he can still tell that testimony. If you've never listened to Dick Lucas preach, he's a he's a British guy. You can find uh, so many of his sermons on on the internet. You can download them and listen to them. One of my very favorite preachers. He's amazing. Got this great British accent. Uh, I love uh, Reverend Dick Lucas, and I uh, urge you to check out some of his messages. Well, we will continue tomorrow talking about the blood of Jesus, and right now we are going to go over to Psalm 145, which we skipped yesterday. Psalm 145, chapter, I mean, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. I exalt you, my God the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and gracious in all of his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open their, your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all of his acts. The Lord is near all who call to him and all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Amos chapter 3 verse 1. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you all for your iniquities. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Does a bird land in a trap on the ground if there's no bait for it? 
Does a trap spring up from the ground when it is caught nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in a city, aren't people afraid? If a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see the great turmoil in the city and the acts of oppression within it. The people are incapable of doing right. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who store up violence and destruction in their citadels, therefore the Lord God says an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. The Lord says as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel on the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Here we go. First Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. These were David's sons who were born to him in Hebron. Amnon was the firstborn by Ahinoam of Jezreel. Daniel was born second by Abigail of Carmel. Absalom, son of Makkah, daughter of King Talmal. Talmai of Gesher was third. Adonijah, son of Haggith, was fourth. Shephatiah by Abital was fifth. And Ithream by David's wife Egla was sixth. Six sons were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months, and he reigned in Jerusalem thirty-three years. These sons were born to him in Jerusalem, Shimeah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. These four were born to him by Bathshua, daughter of Amiel. David's other sons, Ibhar, Elishua, Eliphelet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada and Eliphelet, nine sons. These were all David's sons with their sister Tamar in addition to the sons by his concubines. Solomon's son was Rehoboam, his son was Abijah, his son Asa, his son Jehoshaphat, his son Jehoram, his son Ahaziah, his son Joash, his son Amaziah, his son Azariah, his son Jotham, his son Ahaz, his son Hezekiah, his son Manasseh, his son Amon, and his son Josiah. Josiah's sons Johanan was the firstborn, Jehoiakim second, Zedekiah third, and Shalom fourth. Jehoiakim's sons, his son Jeconiah and Zedekiah. The sons of Jeconiah the captive, his sons Shealtiel, Malchiram, Pedalah, Shinatsar, Jechemiah, Hoshama, and Nedabiah. Padiah's sons, Zerubbabel and Shemai. Zerubbabel's sons, Meshulam and Hananiah, with their sister Shelemith and five others, Hashuba, Ohel, Barakiah, Hasadaiah, and Jusheb Hesed. Hananiah's descendants, Pelatiah, Jeshiah, and the sons of Rephaiah, Arnon, Obadiah, and Shechaniah, the son of Shechaniah, Shemaiah, Shemaiah's sons, Hatush, Igal, Bariah, Neriah, and Shaphat. Six. Neriah's sons, Eloanai, Hizkal, and Azrikam, three. Elunai's sons, Hodaviah, Eliashub, Pelaiah, Akub, Johanan, Deliah, and Anani, seven. Chapter four, Judah's sons, Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. Riala, son of Shobal, fathered Jahath, and Jahath fathered Ahumel, 
and Lahad. These were the families of the Zorathites. These were Etam's sons, Jezreel, Ishma, and Idbash, and their sister was named Hazalaponi. <laughs> Pinuel fathered Gidor, and Ezer fathered Husha. These were the sons of Hur, Epaphrathah's firstborn and the father of Bethlehem. Asher fathered Tekoa and had two wives, Hela and Nara. Nara bore Ahozam, Hefer, Tamini, and Hahashtari to him. These were Nara's sons, Hela's sons, Zareth, Zohar, and Ethnan. Kaz fathered Anub, Zobabah, and the families of Aharchel, son of Haram. Jabez was more honored than his brothers. His mother named him Jabez and said, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez called out to the God of Israel, If only you would bless me, extend my border, let your hand be with me, and keep me from harm so that I will not experience pain. And God granted his request. Chilub, brother of Shuba, fathered Mechir, who was the father of Eshton. Eshton fathered Beth Rapha, Pazai, and Tehina, the father of Ernahash. These were the men of Racha, Kenaz's sons, Othniel and Sariah, Othniel's sons, Hathath and Meonathai. Meonathai fathered Ophrah, and Sariah fathered Joab, the ancestors of those in the craftsmen's valley, for they were craftsmen, the sons of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, Iru, Elah, and Naam, Elah's sons, Kenaz, Jehalel's sons, Ziph, Zipha, Tyria, and Azarel. Ezra's sons, Jether, Machred, Epher, and Jalan. Mered's wife, Bithahiah, gave birth to Miriam, Shammai, and Ishba, the father of Eshtemoa. These were the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, Bithiah. Mored had married her. His Judean wife gave birth to Jared, the father of Gedor, Heber, the father of Soko, and Jekuthiel, the father of Zenoah. The sons of Hodiah's wife, the sister of Naham, the father of Kelah, the Garmite, and the father of Eshtemoah, the Machathite. Shimon's sons, Amnon, Rinnah, Ben-Hanan, and Telon. Ishi's sons, Zoheth and Ben-Zoheth. The sons of Shelah, son of Judah. Ur, the father of Lakah, Ladah, the father of Marashah, the families of the guild of linen workers at Beth Ashbiah, Jochim, the men of Kozabah, and Joash and Saraph, who married Moabites, and returned to Lahrim. These names are from ancient records. They were the potters and residents of Natam and Gedorah. They lived there in the service of the kings. Simeon's sons, Nemuel, Jamin, Jerob, Zerah, and Shal. Shal's sons, his son Shalom, his son Mibsam, and his son Mishma. Mishma's sons, his son Hamuel, his son Zakur, and his son Shemai. Shemai had sixteen sons, and six daughters, but his brothers did not have many children, so their whole family did not become as numerous as the Judeans. They lived in Beersheba, Moladah, Hazar Shual, Bilhah, Ezem, Tolad, Bethuel, Hormah, Ziklag, Beth Markaboth, Hazar Susim, Beth Biri, and Sharim. These were the cities until David became king. Their villages were Etam, Ein, Rimnon, Toshin, and Ashan, five cities, and all their surrounding villages as far as Baal. These were their settlements, and they kept a genealogical record for themselves. Meshobab, Jamlek, Josha, son of Amaziah, Joel, Jehu, son of Josabiah, and of son of Saraiah, son of Aziel, Elonai, Jacoboah, Jeshuhala, Aziah, 
Adiel, Jesimiel, Benaiah, and Ziza, son of Shiphi, son of Alon, son of Jediah, son of Shimri, son of Shemaiah. These mentioned by name were leaders in their families. Their ancestral houses increased greatly. They went to the entrance of Gedor to the east side of the valley to seek pasture for their flocks. They found rich, good pasture, and the land was broad, peaceful, and quiet, for some Hamites had lived there previously. These who were recorded by name came in the days of King Hezekiah of Judah, attacked the Hamites' tents and the Maonites who were found there, and set them apart for destruction as they are today. Then they settled in their place because there was pasture for their flocks. Now five hundred men from these sons of Simeon went with Pelatiah, Neriah, Rephaiah, and Uziel, the descendants of Ishi, as their leaders to Mount Seir. They struck down the remnants of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they still live there today. Well, we somehow survived, but we've gotten more names for tomorrow, so get ready for that. Friends, may the Lord bless you, may he guide you, may he keep you and protect you. Good day to you and Godspeed.